You're listening to audio from Liberty Church in the Harrisburg-Camp Hill area of Pennsylvania. For more information, please visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org. That's Liberty with an I, Harrisburg.org. Well, if you have Bibles, you can make your way to the book of Acts, chapter 7. If you're using one of the black hardcover Bibles that uh, Pastor John mentioned a little while ago, page 914 is where you will find uh, today's text. Last week, uh, when we were in Acts chapter 6, we met a man named Stephen, uh, who's one of the original seven deacons that were tasked with responding to tangible needs in the early church. What we're going to see right after that here in Acts chapter 7 is that that doesn't mean Stephen gave up uh, a ministry of the word. He proclaims the the truth about Jesus uh, very um, effectively and very powerfully. As the end of chapter 6 tells us, Stephen was doing great signs and wonders among the people. Uh, and just as that, as we've seen in Acts now a couple times, created a lot of conflict for the, uh, the apostles with the Jewish leaders, we now also see it create conflict between Stephen and the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem. Uh, they start by trying to reason with him. When that doesn't work, they resort to slander, stirring up the people and producing false witnesses. All of that builds to a trial in front of the council and in front of the high priest where Stephen is charged with this twofold accusation. And you can read that in chapter 6, verse 13. It says, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place, the temple, and the law. So that's where we're going to pick it up in chapter 7. This is, as I'm sure you'll see quickly, a long chapter. So of all of the sermons and speeches that are recorded by Luke in the book of Acts, this one is actually the longest of all of them. Uh, So we're not going to read the whole thing today. You can take a deep breath. Not going to make you listen to me me reading all 60 verses of this. I'm going to read verse 1. Then I'm going to read a couple verses of each paragraph, at least as the way the the English Standard Version has broken up the paragraphs, uh, just to give us a big picture overview uh, of what Stephen says throughout the course of this sermon, this speech. Uh, And then I'm going to finish with verses 51 through 60. I'll read all of those last few verses. So this will be on the screen behind me. Uh, It also is there in your Bibles. You can follow along with me. I'll call it out uh, where we are as we make our way through. But I invite you now to listen with open ears to this book that we love. This is Acts chapter 7, beginning in verse 1. And the high priest said, Are these things so? And Stephen said, Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran, and said to him, Go out from your land and from your kindred, and go into the land that I will show you. Skip down to verse 9. And the patriarchs, who are the brothers of Joseph, who became the figureheads of the twelve tribes of Israel, and the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt, but God was with him and rescued him out of all of his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. Skip down to verse 17. But as the time of promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. Stephen goes on to talk about how then the people were enslaved, but God raised up Moses And then we pick it up in verse 23. When Moses was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. 
He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. Moses flees into Midian, and then we pick it up in verse 30. Now when 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in a flame of fire in a bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight, and as he drew near to look, there came the voice of the Lord. Verse 35, this Moses whom they, the Israelites, rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. Stephen then goes on to talk about how the Israelites created the golden calf, rebelled against God in the wilderness. And then we pick it up in verse 44. Our fathers had the tent of witness, the tabernacle, in other words, in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it, according to the pattern that he had seen. Our fathers, in turn, brought it in with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David. And then picking it up in verse 51. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears. You always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered, who you, received, you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Now when they had heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. This is God's word. Let me pray for us. O Christ, by remaining faithful till death, you have shown us the way to greater love. By praying for those who crucified you, you lead us to forgive in spite of the cost. Come now and help our weak faith. Come now and renew and strengthen our spirit. May your word live within us. May your word guide us always. We pray this in the name of Jesus, our Savior and our God. Amen. The sermon this morning is entitled, The Cost of Telling the Truth. So three things for us to consider from Stephen's speech in Acts chapter 7. The truth, the telling, and the cost. We're just taking that title and working our way backwards through those different pieces. The truth, the substance of Stephen's speech, in other words. The telling, or his approach, how he tells the truth. And then finally, the cost. What happens as a result of that. So first, the truth. The truth. With even the, the quick survey that we've done of Acts chapter 7, we see that Stephen's speech is filled with a lot of historical and scriptural references. It's an oral history of the people of Israel beginning with Abraham. 
What's perhaps not as obvious is how brilliant a response this is to that twofold accusation which is leveled against Stephen. And if you've watched Hamilton anytime recently, you'll find yourself as you're reading Acts 7 and kind of getting what Stephen's doing, you'll want Lin-Manuel to write a musical version of Acts 7 so you can just track along with that. But the issue on the table, so to speak, the accusation, the charge, is that Stephen is speaking against both the temple, God's house, and that he's speaking against the, the law, God's word. Stephen responds, however, that's not the case at all. I'm not speaking against God's house and law. I'm actually going to try to show you how God has always been working through these shadows to point to the substance of Jesus. The temple has been superseded, has been replaced by the temple of Jesus' body. And the law has been fulfilled in Jesus. So let's look at some of the truth in the substance here of Stephen's speech. He begins, as we heard, with Abraham. And then Joseph in Egypt. And then Moses, first in Egypt, and then in Midian, and then at the Exodus, and finally in the wilderness. And then lastly, Stephen speaks of David and Solomon. Besides being a, a chronological retelling of Israel's history, the common theme to all of these accounts that Stephen references here is this. It's that God's presence has never been limited or confined to a particular location. God's presence has never been limited or confined to a particular location. So Abraham was called by God in Mesopotamia, and he was sent into this new land, the promised land. But, verse 5, he was given no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, just a promise that his offspring would receive it. So long before there was a temple, long before there was an established promised land, in lands outside those which were promised, God was present and God was working with Abraham. So too was God present and working in Egypt. And what Joseph's brothers meant for evil, God intended for good. Selling him into slavery led to the preservation of Abraham's family, Abraham's line, when had they stayed in Canaan in the promised land, famine and affliction would have killed them, would have taken them out. So God preserved his people not in the promised land, but in Egypt. And that remained true even during Israel's 400 years of affliction and slavery. Israel increased and multiplied immensely in those days. And then when they cried out to God, God raised up Moses and set the stage for the Exodus. But not before what is perhaps Stephen's strongest argument, that God's presence cannot be limited or confined. Moses fled to Midian. And 40 years later, he was called by God at the burning bush. Do you remember, if you've been reading through the Bible in a year with us, you've been in this passage not that long ago, do you remember what God said to Moses in that moment at the burning bush? Stephen remembers. Stephen remembers, and he quotes it here in verse 33, "'Take off the sandals from your feet, "'for the place you are standing is holy ground.'" In other words, there is holy ground outside the holy land. There's holy ground outside the holy land. And why is that ground at the burning bush holy? It's because the presence of God is there. The presence of God is there. So this is a remarkable defense, clearly empowered by the Spirit of God. As he's accused of being against Moses and against Moses' tradition, Stephen is saying, I'm not against Moses at all. Actually, Moses' life makes the strongest case why we can't confine or limit the presence of God. 
Because likewise, God's presence brought, was with Moses and brought judgment on Egypt and brought deliverance for the people of Israel. And then it sustained the people of Israel for 40 more years in the wilderness. It was during those wilderness days, verse 44, that God directed Moses to make the tabernacle, the tent of witness, as he calls it. Which means, again, that God's presence was with the people of God, not in the promised land, but through the wilderness wanderings all along the way. When they did eventually arrive in the land, David eventually became king, and he wanted to build a house for God. It was a good desire, but he was the wrong one to do it. So his son Solomon built that house. Solomon himself, though, on the day he dedicated that temple, recognized the folly of trying to contain the eternal God in that temple. And he prayed in 2 Chronicles chapter 6, Will God indeed dwell with man on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you, how much less this house that I have built. You see how Stephen... Stephen's response is just a brilliant way to, to speak to the accusations against him. He is not against the temple at all. He is for the presence of God, with the people of God. And he's saying here, brothers and fathers, our own history demands we acknowledge that God is infinitely bigger than this building. Verse 48, he does not dwell in houses made by hands. Will God indeed dwell with man on the earth? Solomon's question. Stephen is saying throughout this entire speech, he has. He has in all of these ways, and now he has once again in an even fuller and clearer and more powerful way, bodily in the person of Jesus Christ. As John Chrysostom would put it some years later, the holy place is there wherever God may be. And God was certainly with Jesus who did not destroy that temple building, but offered up the temple of his own body to be broken down and then raised up on the third day. Jesus is God. The fullness, the whole fullness of God dwells in Jesus bodily. And therefore, Stephen's whole point of this, that Jesus, not the temple, must be the focal point of our worship. Stephen here doesn't only speak the truth about the temple, but he also speaks the truth about God's law. God's word. And again, he is not against God's law at all. But he does want the Jewish leaders to see the truth of Jesus' words, for example, in the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, Jesus says, Do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to what? To fulfill them. And Jesus' fulfillment is really good news because as Stephen is recounting here, Israel's history is filled with examples of Israel re resisting and rejecting God's word and God's revelation of himself. Moses was God's chosen deliverer. But, verses 23 through 29, the first time Moses came to the Israelites, they rejected him. They refused him. Much like, this is Stephen's point, the Jewish leaders are now rejecting and refusing Jesus. Moses received the law. On Mount Sinai, verse 38. But in that 40-day waiting period when he was on the mountain receiving that law, the Israelites made a golden calf and sacrificed to it. 
And as we've been reading, as we've been making our way through the Old Testament, the Israelites complained constantly in the wilderness and several times said to Moses, take us back to Egypt, we prefer slavery to this. When Moses then promised that God would raise up a prophet for himself, as Stephen says in verse 37, Israel began this terrible pattern, this recurring pattern of rejecting and resisting, even persecuting and killing prophets that God sent to his people. And so in verses 42 and 43, Stephen quotes the prophet Amos as one example of that. It hadn't actually been all that long since Jesus himself taught a parable to the Jewish leaders about the owner of a vineyard, the owner of a vineyard who leased his land out to some tenants and then sought some of the fruit from that land. And as he sought some fruit from that land, he sent servants to those tenants. And Jesus is saying for that parable, God kept on sending his servants, the prophets. And the tenants, the people of Israel, the leaders of Israel in particular, kept killing those servants. So eventually God sent his son and they killed him too. See, God's people need Jesus to fulfill the law because we are incapable of keeping it. And actually, the most dangerous posture for us to assume, the most precarious position for us to take, is that we can. The Jewish leaders are angry with Stephen because they think they can keep the law. We love the law, they think. We're the ones stewarding and keeping the law. If we were alive in the days of our fathers, we would have welcomed and received the prophets. We wouldn't have killed them. We would have embraced them. Are you sure? Stephen says, are you sure? What about the history of our people? What about the history of our fathers, our ancestors, gives you the impression that you're somehow above that? That you're incapable of error? That you're incapable of resisting God yourself? This is what C.S. Lewis once called chronological snobbery. Chronological snobbery, or what an author named John Dos Passos called the idiot delusion of the exceptional now. The idiot delusion of, that's a great phrase, the idiot delusion of the exceptional now. Like somehow we've become advanced or enlightened past the point where we're now incapable of doing horrible things. And you and I would do well to heed these same warnings in our day. Humanity is capable of horrible things. We are capable of horrible things. And not because we're trying to do horrible things or be horrible people. We're capable of this precisely because we think they're the right things, because we're inclined to call good evil and evil good. In his defense, Stephen is saying, I love the law of God. I love it. Let's just make sure we see where the law has always been pointing. It has always revealed our inability to keep it. It has always revealed our proclivity to resist and reject God. It has always been screaming that our salvation must come from something other than our efforts to keep the law. Salvation, in other words, Stephen is saying in his sermon, comes through Jesus. The one who perfectly obeyed the law, the one who fulfilled the law. Which is why Stephen is now saying and pleading with the Jewish leaders, don't reject and resist Jesus. Don't make the mistake you think yourself incapable of making. You are doing right now, in this moment, the very same thing that our fathers have done. 
So is Stephen guilty of these accusations of speaking against the temple and against the law? Not at all. Not at all, as John Calvin would put it. No harm can be done to the temple and the law when Christ is openly established as the end and the truth of both. No harm can be done to the temple or the law when Christ is openly established as the end and the truth of both. If that's the truth of Stephen's speech, then second, let's consider the telling. The telling, in other words, the approach of how Stephen goes about telling the truth. The vast majority of Acts chapter 7 is a defense. It's a defense. It's an apologetic for his faith and his conviction. The Jewish leaders bring an accusation. The high priest, who is most likely still Caiaphas, the high priest who presided over Jesus' trial, asks Stephen directly, are these things so? Are these things so? Are you speaking against the temple? Are you speaking against the law? And Stephen respects him and his position and respects the question enough to not play games. He gives an honest answer. He gives his defense. But then in verse 51, it abruptly changes into an offense. And if you read the whole chapter, if you trace out all the different ways Stephen weaves in and out of the history of Israel, and I hope you all do that and take time to do that sometime this week, verse 51 is really striking. It is, a, it is an about face. From the witness stand, the defendant becomes the prosecutor. And he says, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears. And what he's saying there is, it's, it's like you don't even know the covenant that God has made with you. It's like you're an uncircumcised pagan, not the people of God. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Why this abrupt switch to offense? It's because the truth of the gospel is at stake. And that means the souls of people are at stake. See, it's one thing to defend yourself. It's one thing to exonerate yourself when accusations are leveled against you. But this trial is not really about Stephen at all. He's just a messenger. This trial actually, ultimately, is about what is blasphemy and what is beautiful. What is blasphemy and what is beautiful? It's about who is really proclaiming the truth of God. Is it the high priest and the Jewish leaders? Or is it the apostles and the church? And therefore, the telling, the approach, calls for not only a defense, but an offense. In Matthew chapter 16, Jesus says to Peter and to the eleven, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Gates, think about that imagery, gates are a defensive instrument. And so the picture Jesus is painting here, what he is telling to his apostles in Matthew 16, is that the church offensively storms the gates of hell. It breaks them down and it rescues people out of bondage to sin, out of bondage to death. Verse 51 of Acts chapter 7 is a storm the gates of hell moment. It's a storm the gates of hell moment. And church, as we seek to love other people, and as we seek to be faithful to Christ in our time and place, you and I will have moments like that. It's not that we are ever aiming to put people down, crush people, steamroll people. But when the truth of the gospel is at stake, when the souls of other image bearers of God are at stake, I implore you this morning, don't just play defense and run out the clock. 
Don't just play defense and run out the clock. Storm the gates. Don't just be content to defend yourself while leaving other people locked up in prison behind the gates of hell. Love people enough when the truth of the gospel is at stake. Love people enough to storm the gates. As Christians, we need both a defense and an offense. And let Stephen's example then challenge you and me to prepare both of those things. Stephen knew, as is clear here, he knew Israel's history. He knew God's word, the Old Testament scriptures, well enough to freely and powerfully make a defense for his position. So how would you and I fare in Stephen's spot? If we were put in his spot even today, how would we fare in that moment? More realistically, how will you fare when, as Peter writes, you are asked to give a defense for the hope that is in you? internalize God's word like Stephen so that you might give a compelling and a gentle and respectful defense for the hope that is in you. At the same time, when the truth of the gospel is at stake, are we prepared to storm the gates? To, from a heart of love, take an offensive approach, to specifically to challenge the stubbornness, to challenge the lies that other people believe that keep them separated from Christ, that keep them in bondage to sin and death. Stephen, think about this, Stephen could have stopped at verse 50 and quite possibly walked away with his life in this account. But where would that have left the Jewish leaders? Where would that have left the any people listening in in this moment? Where would that leave this early church who has been sent to witness to Jesus' fulfillment of all that the law and all that the temple had been pointing to? And it's often only when we risk the offense that we face the real cost of telling the truth. And so third and finally, let's talk about the cost. The cost. And to put it plainly, the cost of telling the truth is your life. That's the cost of telling the truth. Maybe like Stephen, literally forfeiting your life. Stephen is only the first of many thousands of Christians who have offered up their lives for the sake of the gospel in the 2,000 years since. But even if not your literal death, telling the truth will still cost you your life. It requires laying down your life, dying to your own desires, your own preferences, your own comforts, so that other people might hear the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you can think about it this way. You can live a comfortable life, one where you only do what you want to do and when you want to do it, or you can live a faithful life, but you can't live both at the same time. So this morning, as we recognize that this is the cost we must pay, the cost is our life, let's take note of how Stephen pays it. Look again at those last two verses, verses 59 and 60. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Stephen dies with assurance, with mercy, and with peace. Assurance. Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Stephen knows whom he has believed. Stephen knows who he belongs to. And filled with the Holy Spirit, he sees Jesus standing in heaven at the right hand of God. 
In other passages of Scripture, we read Jesus is seated at the right hand of God. But as one scholar named F.F. Bruce puts it, Jesus stands up as a witness or an advocate in Stephen's defense. He goes on to say this, Stephen has been confessing Christ before men. Now he sees Christ confessing his servant before God. And friends, by faith, you have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. When you and I are willing to pay the cost of telling the truth, Jesus will rise from his throne to plead for you. There is no advocacy like Christ's advocacy. There is no vindication like Christ's vindication. There is no greater assurance that your life is hidden in him and that he will receive your soul for all eternity than that, than that Jesus stands to confess you before God the Father. Stephen also dies with mercy in his heart. Lord, do not hold this sin against them, which only further proves his motive all along in his words here. His words of both defense and offense have not been to harm, but to heal. They have been words not of hatred, but of love. And so the very last thing he says, and the loudest thing he says, crying out with a loud voice, is for God to forgive his accusers and his executioners, to keep pursuing them. Forgive them, God. Give them another opportunity. Keep pursuing them. And lastly, Stephen dies with peace. As Luke puts it, he fell asleep. Now, considering the violence of a death by stoning, that is a remarkable description of the end of Stephen's life. But hearing his assurance and hearing his mercy, the mercy in his heart, it fits. It fits. See, when you and I consider the cost of telling the truth, or in moments of our lives when we're asked to pay it, we often find ourselves bitter, resentful, filled with self-pity, maybe all three of those things simultaneously. And that's such a common response to costly living that it actually has its own name in our vernacular. What is it? A martyr complex. A martyr complex. Do you know who doesn't have a martyr complex? Real martyrs. Real martyrs. And so just as Stephen reminds the Jewish leaders of their story, let us remember ours. From Stephen onward for 2,000 years, as they seal their testimony with their own blood, real martyrs die not with self-pity and resentment. They die with assurance and with mercy and peace. As a follower of Jesus, when you are asked to pay the cost of telling the truth and you find yourself filled with that resentment, filled with that self-pity, consider in that moment how warped your perspective has become, how sin has gotten in there and warped your, your vantage point. In those moments, consider Stephen. And even more, consider Christ. Because Stephen's death, of course, is a reflection of Jesus' own. False witnesses, accusation of blasphemy, prayers in his final moments for God to receive his spirit and forgive his executioners. The cost of telling the truth is your life. And no one has paid that cost like Jesus. Offering up his perfect life, bearing the weight of every sin and shame for those who come to him, Jesus has accomplished our salvation. And because he was willing for the joy set before him to pay that cost for you, may you be willing for that same joy to pay the cost of telling the truth.
Let me pray for us. Oh, Lord God, as Stephen recounted even in Acts chapter 7, you led your people through the wilderness and you brought them into the promised land. So now we ask that you would guide us, following our Savior, that we might walk through the wilderness of this world toward the glory of the world to come. Lord Jesus, you have paid the cost for our salvation and what a cost it was. So in response, may we pay the cost to proclaim the truth of your gospel. And as we now come to this, your table, and we see the cost that you have paid, may you strengthen us by your spirit with grace. May you renew us in the grace of your gospel that we might go and be sent into this world to pay the cost of telling the truth. We pray that all Jesus in your name. You are our Savior and our God. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Liberty Church. To learn more about our church or to listen to previous recordings, visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org.